Thank you, Bertie. Thank you, messengers and woods, for being here today and for sharing your music. You have blessed us. Thank you. And Doug, your prayer, too. Thank you. On Friday mornings, I read stories to the kids at Mountain View School. This year, we're reading a volume called The Book of God. It's like a novel made from the Bible. It takes the stories of the major players, adds detail, arranges them in a kind of epic tale, and makes them come to life. And we've been making our way through the Old Testament. But for the elementary age kids, I sometimes have to skip over a sentence or two that's kind of, you know, over the top for them. That was especially true when we came to the book of Judges. I had to skip about half the material. Michelle probably wishes I had skipped a little more. The book of Judges is, how would you describe it? <laughs> it's a very unsettling book, yeah. Earlier this year, I read through the book of Judges in a single sitting. Had never done that before. It's very intense in a single sitting. If the book of Judges was a movie on Netflix, it would be an action thriller, rated R, for violence, mayhem, and gore, mostly, and for sex, too. It's a nonstop adrenaline rush. Fat warlords get eviscerated in bathrooms. Hordes of bad guys get clubbed to death with donkey skulls. Whole armies are wiped out by friendly fire. Farms are torched and incinerated by living animals set on fire. Horribly rash vows get made and even more horribly kept. Concubines get gang-raped and dismembered. Strong men get seduced. Girls get kidnapped at outdoor parties. One kingpin even gets his head nailed to the floor by a woman. It's a very unsettling book. After I was finished with that 90-minute thriller, I decided I'm ready for something a little different. Now, I will confess here that although I sometimes enjoy a good action film, I'm also a sucker for romance. When Colette and I watch a movie together, it's almost always a chick flick. And that's okay with me. Amy was home for Thanksgiving. She wanted to watch Little Women. <laughs> Any guy in here willing to admit you watched Little Women all the way to the end? Yeah, we did. It was good. Next day, after Judges, I decided what I was going to read. Ruth, the chick flick book. A beautiful love story between an impoverished Moabite maiden and Boaz, the handsome and wealthy landowner. And we all know the plot line. A series of tragic events befalls Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, pushes the women over the poverty line, but it also draws Ruth and Boaz together. Their meeting ultimately leads to a marriage proposal, a wedding, a son, and the restoration of the distraught Naomi. Boaz, the hero, and his generosity reverse the sagging fortunes of two hapless women. It's a kind of cute, happily ever after tale. 
If Ruth were a movie on Netflix, it would be a romance with five stars. It would be certifiably fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, 95%. But a kind of strange thing happened as I was making my way slowly through the book of Ruth this time. I kind of hate to admit it to you, but I found myself getting a little teary. And that had never happened to me before, reading Ruth. It is a wonderful story, but this time through it wasn't the romance. What struck me was the essential goodness of the story. The goodness of the characters it portrays. Their heroic choices made through genuinely tough circumstances. It just kind of choked me up. Maybe it's because it's such a contrast to judges. Or maybe it's because the world just seems so messed up right now. I don't know, but it drew me in and I decided to go a little deeper in this short book and I have been surprised by what I have found. Of course, one of the best writers on the book of Ruth is a woman by the name of Elizabeth Talbot who has a website called Jesus 101. Her sermon on Ruth and the Goel Redeemer is absolute tops. It's one of my top five all-time favorite sermons. She is the gold standard. And Joanne Davidson at our seminary isn't far behind. She has also written some really good stuff. But I went online anyway to see what else I could find, and there was a particular commentary I could get on Kindle that wasn't very expensive. I'd never heard of the author. The cover didn't look all that exciting, but the others were in the $30 to $40 range, and hey, this one was eight bucks. So I downloaded it, and that night I read it front to back. Turns out to be a magnificent piece of work. A good bit of what I will share with you over the next couple weeks comes from that book, and I'll share the title and author with you next week. If I told you right now, you'd just download it and ruin all the flow. <laughs> One of the most surprising things that I have learned recently is this. Rather than being a romance, Ruth is the story of three people who make courageous choices to live according to the principles of the kingdom of God rather than by the customs of the surrounding culture. And that alters the trajectories of their lives for good in ways unimaginable and in far-reaching ways that would ultimately bless the whole world. As Joanne Davidson writes, through a seemingly lifeless family, the Lord would eventually bring eternal life to all humanity. We'll see how that plays out along the way. This morning what I want to do is give you an, inner, uh, an overview of, of this book and set the stage for where we're going. The book of Ruth is named, of course, after its major character. We don't know who wrote it. But the best guess is probably Samuel, who was the last judge of God's people. It was written at least 100 years after it took place. Um, and it couldn't have been written before David had been anointed king, unless the last few verses were added later, which they probably were not. The most fascinating thing about the title of the book is that it's a woman's name. And only one of two in the whole Bible to have that distinction. Esther being the only other example. And that's a big clue as to where we're going. But even more interesting is where it falls in the Bible. 
In my Bible and in yours, it falls right between Judges and 1 Samuel. So it forms a kind of bridge between the Wild West times of the Judges and the coming of King David who unifies the 12 tribes into a nation. Practically the whole of 1 and 2 Samuel are stories about David, the king, and uh, Ruth being in the position where it comes right after Judges and before 1 Samuel paves the way for that. But wait, verse 1 doesn't say that the book of Ruth is a bridge between Judges and the monarchy. It says the story takes place during the time that the Judges ruled, during that time. And if you pay any, any stock at all to the genealogy that follows, you find it probably took place early on in the time of Judges, not at the end. So what we have in the book of Ruth is really a story of an ordinary family living in those tumultuous times that careen like a roller coaster between prosperity and adversity, faithfulness and apostasy. It's a window into that age. That's where it falls in our Bibles. But in the Hebrew Bible, Ruth comes in another place. In the Hebrew Scriptures, Ruth follows immediately after the book of Proverbs, which means this book is considered to be part of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. It is a story about making wise choices, and it's told so that the reader might become a wise person too. We are the readers. By reading it and taking it to heart, we can become wise. We can learn how to make good choices. But there's more. If Ruth follows Proverbs, then obviously it follows the end of Proverbs, right? Wow, that's pretty profound. But wait, how does the book of Proverbs end? It ends with chapter 31, that famous, famous passage that is sometimes annotated in our Bibles as the tribute to a woman of noble character, which is a very countercultural chapter, by the way, because in a world where men always take center stage, this chapter describes a strong woman who not only takes care of her household and provides for her family, but who makes savvy business decisions and serves the poor and teaches in public and garners the praise of her husband. And Proverbs has a lot to say about women, all kinds of women. And so this ending, this ode to a wise woman, was not an afterthought. The author put it there for a purpose. And you see what that means, right? Ruth, following Proverbs 31, becomes a case in point. The example, the witness of what real-life, countercultural women of noble character looks like. And that's exactly who we will discover her to be. And the delicious irony in this is that not only is Ruth not a man, she's not even an Israelite woman. Right? She is a Moabitess, a detestable Moabite woman that God holds up and says, here, if you want to know what nobility looks like, if you want to see courage and faithfulness and steadfast love and genuine goodness, take a look at Ruth. Oh, yeah. And she's from Moab. The people with whom the Israelites were forbidden by Moses to even associate. Of course, in the story, we know it's not only Ruth. 
It's also Naomi and Boaz, all three of them working together. And in this unlikely little team, God will raise the bar for what it means to be males and females working together as God's image bearers, to live in a fallen world as God's children. One writer has called this concept the blessed alliance. The idea that men and women working together reflect the image of God, not only in who they are, but in what they do. And we thought about this a little bit a few weeks ago. We pondered those verses in Genesis 1 where it says, So God created man in his own image. In in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful in increasing number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves along the ground. The man and the woman together, God's image bearers, the blessed alliance commissioned to do his work in the world and in the fallen world. But this alliance, this male-female team that God has blessed is not confined to nor defined by marriage. It is reflected by the whole church as the body of Christ. And the book of Ruth provides us a wonderful example as Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz work together, join forces to address local family problems while God works through their sacrificial actions, though they know it not, to advance his purposes for the whole world. And that's kind of a wonderful irony too, isn't it? I mean, that they didn't even know what God was doing. That Ruth and Boaz and Naomi rise up and embrace their high calling, but they have no idea whatsoever how far-reaching their little choices will be. And this is a spoiler alert now, but here it is. We read this book from a kind of cosmic level. We see how God will work through the choices of his people. King David will descend from Ruth and Boaz's line, and David will come a thousand years later. uh, From him will come Jesus, the Savior of the whole world. But even though Ruth lived that storyline... She didn't have the last five and a half verses of the story because that was all written down a long three generations later. She went to her grave. Boaz went to his grave without ever knowing. Didn't have a clue. Won't they be surprised someday? I mean, can you imagine people come up to Ruth, man, I've read your story. People have read your story for, you know, a couple of thousand years. What? My story? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, not, it's only at the cosmic level that we recognize how God is working through the lives of ordinary and socially insignificant people to advance his larger purposes in the world. And I think that's where it kind of becomes real for us, too. Sometimes we have the privilege of seeing how God has affected good from the choices we have made and the way we have lived our lives. But not always, and certainly not very far into future generations, But we choose the way of the kingdom anyway because we know that God is faithful even when it seems like he's not. And I'll tell you what, to Naomi, it seemed like he was not. 
But God will work through our ordinary and seemingly insignificant lives to bring about good and to advance his purposes, even when we can't see a shred of evidence to support it. He just will. And we have to believe that and trust and do the right thing. We are called to bear his image, to represent his character. Because this world we see all around us, the way things work, how things go down, you know, the visible world, the suffering, the pain, the misery, you know, it's not the only world. This government we see and how it operates and the corruption we see, it's not the only government. There is another world and it's very close. Jesus says it has come very near and sometimes it intersects the world we see. We don't see it with our eyes, but we know it with our hearts. It's called the kingdom of God. And the principles of the kingdom of God are not the same principles we see operating in the kingdom of this world. God's kingdom is seemingly all topsy-turvy to what we see with our eyes. It's countercultural to the culture in which we find ourselves immersed in. We know this. And so every day, we have choices to make on which kingdom we will align with, the set of principles we will live by, how we will act, what we will say, how we will spend our money and our time and our influence, who we will trust, with whom we will place our loyalty. Will it be with the kingdom of this world or will it be with the kingdom of God? They're the very same choices Ruth had to make and Naomi. So let's begin with the, with the opening salvo, okay? The verses Birdie read to us. These verses set the stage for what's coming, and it really is a barrage, okay? This is a litany of disaster, this opening section. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Bethlehem means the house of bread. Only there's nothing left to eat in the house of bread. The cupboards are bare. In Judah... The land God said would flow with milk and honey, there's no honey flowing. The spigots are closed. Why is that? Well, maybe it's because this story happens in the days when the judges ruled. And in those days, everybody did what was right in their own eyes, and a lot of it wasn't right. Lots of people lived pretty selfishly. They followed the fallen customs of the culture all around them. Everybody was a law unto themselves. If you know anything at all about the days of the judges, you know life was like a seesaw, up and down, cycles of prosperity followed by adversity and anguish. Faithfulness on the part of God's people would lead to prosperity. And then a funny thing would happen. You would not guess it. Prosperity would lead the people away from God. It's kind of counterintuitive. 
because we want to be prosperous, don't we? We like prosperity. We want good things. And, and, pros and prosperity is good. I mean, God likes to bless his people. But generally the times when things are going really good is the time of greatest spiritual danger. It's funny how that works. And that's the global lesson from the whole book of Judges, when the days when the judges ruled. Instead of thanking God when life was good, his people would abandon him for the idols of the people living around them, which would lead to trouble and oppression by their enemies and adversity. Their enemies would swoop down and terrorize the villages and steal the crops and slaughter the sheep and impoverish the people until... And you also find this phrase in the book of Judges. God would hear the cries of anguish from his people and he could bear their misery no longer. He just couldn't take it. It would break his heart. And so he'd raise up a deliverer, a judge, who would lead the people back to faithfulness and prosperity would return for a few short years until the cycle started again. Why was there nothing to eat in the house of bread? Well, maybe they were just at that stage in the cycle. Maybe the people had left God behind. Maybe they had traded him in for other gods. And so they got hungry. In Bethlehem of Judah, a man and his wife and two sons became famine refugees. Now we've seen images of famine refugees on the news. They are not happy people. They are gaunt looking and hopeless, wearing everything they own, a kind of emptiness in their eyes, trudging along in the dust, not knowing when they will eat again, not knowing where they will live. Nobody likes famine refugees. Nobody wants them. They are huge burdens to any nation's social system. Elimelech and his family were famine refugees. Famines were common in biblical times, and believe it or not, they're still common today. 30 million people will go to bed hungry tonight in places like Chad and Ethiopia and Yemen. I mean, in Yemen, 70% of the population faces extreme food shortage, 70%. Verse 1 says, This hungry little family leaves their homeland, and they head to Moab for all places. In fact, it says it twice, Moab. Why do they go to Moab? It's not a particularly friendly place. It is not. The second judge of Israel was an unlikely left-handed fellow by the name of Ehud who was sent by his countrymen to pay the tribute money, the protection money, to a mafioso named Eglon. Eglon was a very fat, very arrogant warlord, and guess who he ruled over? Moab. So the Moabs had, not so very long ago, been the oppressors of Israel. Well, after Ehud paid Eglon the tribute, if you remember the lovely story, he followed him into his private bathroom, pulled out a hidden dagger, gutted him, left him lying bleeding out and dying on the floor before escaping out a window. And of course, that led to war. And in the course of that war, thousands of Moabites were killed. 
There is no love lost between these two people, the Israelites and the Moabites. So why does the family go to Moab? Because in Moab, there's food. People who study refugees and immigrants say that there are two contributing factors that cause people to leave their homelands and seek a different place. There's the push factor, the bad circumstances that people are fleeing from. Might be government corruption, might be crime, might be war, might be religious persecution, might be famine. And there is the pull factor, the allure of something better in some new place. And the thing about the pull factor is that often it might not even be real. It might just be a hope of something better. It might be a rumor. It might be just an imagination. And we see some of that happening right now on our southern border, don't we? Well, hunger and food make a pretty potent push-pull combination. But verse 1 says, it's only going to be for a little while, this sojourn in Moab. They'll be home soon because that's what almost all famine refugees want. They just want to go home. So this will just be a short stay. Only things don't go as planned. Turns out it's probably more like a 20-year stay. In fact, things go from bad to worse and then from worse to absolute catastrophe. Verse 3, now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. Now she's a widow, which means she's moved, she's, she's dropped down even a little farther on the social standing uh, rack. She's still living in a foreign land among people who probably resent her and maybe detest her, Verse 4, her sons married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. Hardly what any good God-fearing Israelite mother would hope for her sons, is it? To marry not only foreign girls, that's bad enough, but pagan, idol-worshiping girls, and not only pagans, but of the worst imaginable kind. The chief deity of Moab was Chemosh, whose name means destroyer, and whom the Bible calls out as detestable. Scholars think the god Chemosh was the same as the god that the Bible calls Molech in a number of places. Scripture calls them both detestable gods because their worshipers would offer their young children to them by fire. It was a horrible, hideous practice. There is some evidence that this god, Chemosh or Molech, was patterned after the Egyptian god Apis, which was a bull, but Chemosh made of metal with a human body and a bull's head. Fires would be lit under its outstretched arms, and when those arms were red hot, infants and young children would be laid in them alive and sacrificed, and God repeatedly called that practice detestable. He says such a ghastly idea never even entered into his mind. But that's Chemosh. That's Molech. 
Now, Naomi's sons are wed to these Moabite girls. But at least there's still a sliver of hope for Naomi because sons can be born to them, at least. Only then the bottom falls out. Verse 5. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Now that sentence is absolutely critical to understand the heart of the book of Ruth. Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. We'll spend some the rest of the, the few minutes that we have left this morning unpacking that verse. We've got to remember that when we read the Bible, we tend to read it through American eyes. We superimpose upon it our own Western values. And that's a huge disadvantage because we miss the critical role that culture plays in allowing us to understand what's really going on. So what's really going on? Well, the story of Ruth takes place within a full-fledged patriarchal culture. Now, you know the word patriarch. The word patriarch is an honorable word. It's a good word. It simply means the male head of a clan or a family. My grandfather Carl was the patriarch of our family on my mother's side. His wife, Claris, my grandmother, was the matriarch. In the Bible, the word patriarch almost always refers to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were the fathers of the nation of Israel. But there's another word that sounds almost the same. It is the word patriarchy. The word patriarchy is not such a good word. In simple terms, patriarchy is a social system that privileges men over women where the actions of men command the storyline and the focus and women, with very few exceptions, recede into the background. In a culture driven by patriarchy, a woman derives her value from men, her father, her husband, but most significantly from her sons. Sons are patriarchy's gold standard for determining the value of a woman. You can see how that standard of measurement had an absolutely devastating impact on both Naomi and Ruth. Naomi's primary responsibility as a wife was to produce sons for her husband. As the mother of two sons, she has succeeded and fulfilled her duty. Her value seemed secure. Even with the terrible loss of her husband, her two boys provide double insurance. They will take care of her. And they hold the promise that the family will survive for another generation. Even though they're married to Moabite girls, distasteful though that be, they will still at least have sons. But for 10 years, there's not a pregnancy mentioned. You do the math, you know. Between Ruth and Orpah, as the months roll by, that's at least 240 increasingly agonizing disappointments. In our day, fertility is a profound heartache. I have some good friends who have, been, who have borne that misfortune, and some of you have borne that as well. But in biblical times, it rose to epic proportions. It was a sign of failure. 
was a sign of disgrace. It was assumed to be the result of some sin, and it was always the woman's fault. You think about the stories of barren women in the Bible, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah. Desperation, of, desperation for sons drove those women to extremes. They offered their slave girls as surrogates. They made radical vows. There are patriarchal, patriarchal cultures even today in our world in which if a woman fails to give pregnant, fails to get pregnant or gives birth only to daughters, she's in trouble. Her husband will divorce her or he will add a second wife, which is what Hannah's husband did, if you remember in the story of Samuel. Polygamy gives husbands options within patriarchy because a man must have sons. After 10 years without a signal pregnancy with, between them, Orpah and Ruth bore the stigma of barrenness. By then, Naomi's sons are both surely thinking about their options. But then the unspeakable happens. Malon and then Kilian die, both of them. Naomi has not only lost her children, her, her, her precious boys, but this is a complete destruction of her life's work and her value as a woman. The losses she sustains here are catastrophic. They're horrific. Within a culture of patriarchy, the day they buried Malon and Kilion, they buried Ruth too, or Naomi. So these three women, Naomi and Ruth and and Orpah, they have no more value. They're spent. They are worthless. They are three big fat zeros, but especially Naomi. She has no future. She is old and postmenopausal. She has no hope. And we sang hopeful songs for worship this morning, didn't we? Children of the Heavenly Father, safely in his bosom gather. Guess what? Naomi wasn't singing that song. No. The idea that God will keep evil from happening to his children, mm -mm. Naomi isn't, isn't there. She will not sing, Oh God, our help in ages past. She couldn't sing that kind of song, the kind of songs that we sang this morning, because she was crushed. She was devastated. And we will find next week that Naomi will draw a straight line between her loss and God's character. It's God's character that's really on the line here in the story of the book of Ruth. I actually searched this week for some songs that would capture the theme, you know, of despair. They're not easy to find, unless you want to go to the country western genre. And the truth is, sometimes it's hard for us to sing those kind of songs too, isn't it? It's hard. We know there will be times when Naomi's questions will be our questions too. The next verse, verse 6, has her returning to Judah. But she's not going there to start over, okay? She's going home to die. Only things will not turn out like she expects. 
So this is the fallen context in which this story takes place. And when we read it, we have to be careful to distinguish between the fallen ways of human cultures that people have created and the good world that God created in the first place and that Jesus came to redeem. In the words of author Carolyn James, Jesus didn't come to give us a kinder, gentler patriarchy. He came to bring the kingdom of God, and it's very close. It's very near. But it's not like the kingdom of this world. It's the kingdom that was lost way back in Eden at the fall, but that Jesus came to redeem. And we get to choose which kingdom we will align with. We get to choose. A lot of us kind of assume that patriarchy, or at least some softer version of it, is the Bible's message for us today, or at least the church's message. I know one young lady who is very close to me and very dear to me who truly believes that. And so she doesn't have much time for the church anymore, and not a whole lot of time for the Bible either. But patriarchy is not God's message it is rather the cultural backdrop against which the gospel message of the kingdom of God stands out in sharpest relief. If we remember this, we will be able to see how the book of Ruth actually subverts the patriarchal value system, how the kingdom of God breaks into fallen culture and shines a light on the gospel because Ruth and Naomi and Boaz choose to act in selfless ways because they choose kingdom values. According to patriarchal values, Naomi and Ruth have lost all values, so their story doesn't even matter. But in the short eight-sentence prologue of this book, all the men are effectively cleared from the stage. And so now the story is only about women. Now they take center stage. They are the story. And Boaz, in his response to Ruth's initiatives, will subvert the very patriarchal mores that most benefit him as a man. He will sacrificially employ those benefits and privileges to empower Ruth and to benefit Naomi. And in that process, he will put on display Jesus' kingdom brand of manhood that is in such short supply in the world today. All three of these lead characters, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, will undergo significant character development as the story progresses. God will use their interaction with each other not only to transform them, but to affect the whole world. Together, the three of them create a stunning display of the power of the gospel to transform human lives. Centuries before Jesus comes. That's what we will discover in the coming weeks. And that's where we'll stop for this morning. So let's sing, O oh God, our help in ages past.